All right, here we are in Acts chapter 12. I think our text today affords us a really fresh opportunity to think about God's sovereignty as it relates to the gospel going out into the world. You know that God rules all things um, from the smallest things to the greatest things. Whatever he ordains comes to pass and whatever happens he has ordained. Uh, From the squirrel's effort to dash across the street in front of your car and failing to great earthquakes that take tens of thousands of human lives. God is sovereign over everything that happens in the world. God rules over all of it. Even the choices of men, while they are real choices that people make, they are governed actively or permissively by God's sovereign will. So God can, at his will, according to his will, stop someone from doing something, obviously if he wants to do that, or permit them to do something. Uh, He can use even their corrupt wills against them by putting thoughts or desires in their heads to do what he wants them to do. It's like when God hardened the heart of Pharaoh because he wanted to achieve a greater deliverance. So he made Pharaoh a super stubborn, foolish man, probably more so than he would have been by just keeping him where his hard heart was and keeping him from responding. God bends the will of kings to himself. As King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged in Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's exactly right. Nobody can say what have you done because God ordains all things that come to pass. John Newton, the man that wrote the song Amazing Grace, he had a little 13 year old adopted daughter who was away at school and She was talking about which week she was going to come home and he wrote this letter to her and in part of that letter he said, I wish for you my dear child to think much, think much of the Lord's governing providence. It extends to the most minutest concerns. He rules and manages all things but in so secret a way that most people think he does nothing when in reality he does all. If I could teach you a lesson which as yet I have but poorly learned myself, I would teach you a way to never be disappointed. That would be the case if you could always form a right judgment of this world and all things in it. If you go to a bramble bush to look for grapes, you must be disappointed. But then you are old enough to know that grapes never grow on brambles. So too, if you expect much pleasure here in this world, you will not find it. But you ought not to say that you are disappointed because the scripture plainly warned you beforehand to look for crosses and trials and hindrances every day. If you expect such things, you will not be disappointed when they happen. So Acts chapter 12 this morning is really the remarkable story of the continued growth of the church and I I think Um, this text tells us a lot, a lot about prayer for one, but also about the sovereign and sometimes mysterious hand of God. There are things here we would see as very sad and things that are joyful, just like life, but God is in charge and over all of it. Knowing that God is sovereign is really helpful in our own personal walk with the Lord as well. So this chapter tells 
of a fresh wave of persecution to hit the church in Jerusalem. The church had lived for several years in relative peace. It was prospering. But in the mid 40s AD when that came around Herod himself initiated a new wave of persecution. Remember some weeks back I mentioned the attention of Jewish leaders in Judea had been drawn away from the church by the ascension of uh, Caius who was, n- was nicknamed Caligula uh, to the emperor's throne and how Caligula planned to put a statue of himself in the temple. Do you remember that story? Well in ch- by chapter 12 just historically speaking that distraction is over and uh, Caligula is dead murdered by his own bodyguards in AD 41. And when that was happening uh, that murder was happening of Caligula Herod Agrippa was in Rome and he got himself a promotion. I think you're thinking another Herod? How many Herods are there? Yeah there's a lot. Uh, Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. That was the Herod the Great is the Herod that murdered the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Herod Agrippa's mother sent him to Rome after his father was murdered by Herod the Great. So Herod the Great murdered a couple of his own sons when he was he, he was obviously super jealous of his power and his um, that's why he murdered the children in Bethlehem and that's why he murdered his own children but Herod uh, Agrippa's mother sent him to Rome to be raised. He was only four years old when he went there. But he was actually raised by a member of the imperial family so he grew up very close to the uh, Caesars. The Emperor Tiberius's son oversaw his um, development and he became very close with Caligula as a young, as a young person. So when Caligula became emperor uh, his friend Herod Agrippa got a lot more power. Caligula made him the tetrarch of Iturea and Abilene which is sort of Syria, southern Syria and he gave him the title king which no Herod had had un- since Herod the Great was the king. And Later he made him also the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea which are northern parts of Israel. So that used to belong to Herod Antipas. So let me straighten out our biblical Herods one more time. So Herod the Great was the king at Christ's birth and started the great temple's um, construction. He was a super builder. Herod Antipas is the man that um, murdered John the Baptist, had him executed and mocked Jesus at his trial. Herod Agrippa had persuaded Caligula that Herod Antipas was not loyal to him so he got deposed from his throne and that's how Agrippa became the Tetrarch of Galilee. So it's such a warm loving family these Herod people. So Agrippa was a very crafty politician obviously and never more so than when Caligula his good friend was murdered by his own guards. You would think that close friendship might put him in danger being part of the old regime. No, no Agrippa was so good he became friends, close friends with the next emperor which was Claudius. He's the new emperor. So Claudius gave him the whole territory that Herod the Great had had. So no one had been that powerful since Herod the Great's time. His kingdom had been divided up amongst a bunch of guys. But now it was all back under Herod Agrippa. So um, he was sitting quite pretty here as they say. Now I should tell you why the Jews loved Herod Antipas. Uh, So we're going to back up a little bit. Like I said I told you about how Caligula when he was angry with the Jews wanted to put a statue of himself 
to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem which would have caused a war. The Jews simply would not have allowed that. And Josephus tells an incredibly detailed story, a very detailed story of this huge, amazing, unsurpassed dinner that Herod, Aunt Herod Agrippa put on for Caligula. Far beyond anything anyone ever seen before he says. So Josephus says Agrippa quote, I'm going to read this now, was careful to exceed all others both in expense and in such preparations as might contribute most to his pleasure. Nay it was so, it was so far above the ability of others that Caligula himself could never equal much less exceed it. Such care had he taken beforehand to exceed all men and particularly to make all agreeable to Caesar. So this is according to Josephus this is quite it's such a spectacular dinner even Caligula could not have put it on. That makes the story a little bit suspect in some of the details. Caligula felt um, bound to reward him in equal measure for this honor that was given him especially in front of all these people and Caligula basically asked Herod um, Agrippa in front of all the guests um, what he would like as a reward for this devotion for putting on this great dinner. So Agrippa humbly said his only desire was to put on a supper worthy of the emperor, worthy of Caligula. He'd already had more kindness from the emperor than he really deserved. So Josephus again I'm quoting now, and as Caligula was astonished at Agrippa's inclinations and pressed him all the more to make his request for something with which he might gratify him, Agrippa replied, since you O Lord declare such is your readiness to grant that I am worthy of your gifts, I will ask nothing relating to my own felicity, his own happiness. For what you have already bestowed on me has made me excel, but I desire something which may make you glorious for piety and render heaven's assistance to your designs and may be for an honor to me among those who ask about it as showing that I never once fail of obtaining what I desire of you. For my petition is this, that you will no longer think of the dedication of that statue of which you have ordered to be set up in the Jewish temple by Petronius who was the governor of Syria. So that's the story that got around. It's a little bit different than some of the other ancient historians stories so about that very event. So take it with a grain of salt. Josephus tended to ingratiate himself with uh, Roman power so he might, might be flattering uh, Herod Agrippa a little bit here. But um, whether or not it's political propaganda people totally bought this version of events that were there. So it was hugely effective. So the Jews back in the Holy Land believed this account and thought he could have asked for anything, anything at all but he saved our nation from certain war if Caligula had brought that statue, if he had gone through with his plan. So they loved Herod for that. He was the only Herod really that was truly loved by most of the people in Israel. He even had a Jewish mother. Um, so they, his family were Idumeans but his, his father married a Jewish woman so his mother was Jewish and they loved him for that as well. So he's basking in their favor. Uh, if he could do something for them he would do it. What would please them? You know what, what, what is something that he alone could do for them? Well crush the followers of Jesus is one of the conclusions he came to. Put an end to it. Finish the church in the Holy Land for good. So chapter 12 begins verse 1. Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. 
So boom, James is gone, off the scene, beheaded. James, the son of Zebedee, one of the three. Now you know there were 12 apostles chosen by Jesus, but there, were plain, there was plainly an inner circle of three out of the 12, Peter, James, and John, James and John being brothers. So these three were, seemed like they were frequently invited in to see things that the other apostles did not get to see. A couple of examples from Mark's gospel, the raising of Jairus' daughter, Mark chapter five. Only Peter, James, and John were allowed in to see that happen. The Mount of Transfiguration, one of the great events in the life of Christ when Peter, James, and John saw that amazing scene, Mark chapter nine, verse two, on the mountain where Jesus was transformed in front of them and they saw him in glory. The Garden of Gethsemane, all the way to the end, Jesus had the others sit down, but Mark 14, 32, and 33 says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden to be nearer to him. So um, that's part of that story as well. So it's really an interesting conversation um, somewhere in all of that that Jesus had with James and John in Mark's gospel. It's kind of humorous because the, the boys are, are pretty bold. Uh, Mark 10:35. it says, James and John, two of the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that's the part that's a little bit funny to me because Jesus being the son of God and a pretty wise person and probably you would say this too, well what do you want? (laughs) Tell me what you want before I say yes, I'll give you whatever you want. So he said, what do you want me to do for you? Now listen, this is the request. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. That's a pretty shameless request which caused a big kerfuffle amongst the disciples because they thought what are you guys doing claiming that spot so they wanted to be able to sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus when he was in his glory on his throne ruling the world as the Messiah you think they could have played it a little bit better than that like Agrippa how he flattered and worked his old way in there but they just flat out just flat out asked for that Um, Matthew says it was their mother that was kind of pushing this thing so that might have been a factor there as well Anyway, it gets serious real quick when Jesus answers them. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, so I'm in Mark chapter 10, verse 38. You do not know what you are asking, he tells them. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. I don't think they thought very deeply about what they were agreeing to. The cup is the cup of suffering and James, it turns out, is going to drink that cup quite early on. Now I want to discuss two issues related to all this. One is history just as a historical aspect of this and then I want to talk about God's sovereignty some more. There's something remarkable about this story about James from a historical perspective. You know I was a history major in college that makes me an expert in almost nothing but 
I do kind of know how historians think and how they look at um, documents and stories. What makes recorded history considered accurate as opposed to made up, you know, for whatever reason. There's, that's always a historian's challenge when looking at ancient records. Biased accounts, fabrications, rumors versus facts, those kind of issues. Everybody's weighing that. So just kind of think with me here for a second. James is the first apostolic martyr. The first of the apostles to die. The only one really mentioned in the New Testament as having died. The rest are all part of other history. Um, One of the most well-known apostles uh, because he was one of the three in the Gospels. So what's missing here in Acts chapter 12 about the, the death of James, the martyrdom of James? Well, there's just no story. There's no story at all. It's just a headline, basically. It's a simple fact. We don't see his testimony, hear about his courage, his demeanor, his parting words. You know, a martyr story. We don't have one of those. Think, think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, a, a comparatively minor person compared to one of the intimate three apostles that Jesus had. He, Stephen gets a huge chapter. He gets a long speech and, and an eloquent defense and a heavenly vision. And he himself is described as having the face of an angel as he faces death for the cause of Christ calling upon Jesus it's a, it's a great story James he gets nothing nothing like that why well if someone wanted to create a good story or construct a wonderful martyr narrative here's their chance to do it but there's nothing about it why because this is history it's not mythology it's not made up Stephen had a trial and he was taken by a mob out in public and stoned to death and there were many witnesses to everything that happened there. Saul of Tarsus was one of those witnesses and Luke learned what happened with Stephen straight from witnesses who were there. So that story is told. James apparently was arrested pulled off into some back room somewhere and beheaded and that's it. That's all we know. Nobody was there to witness it to tell the story later. So like all the nameless, faceless, political and religious victims all over the world in the last hundred years, whether from Germany or Russia or Cambodia or Cuba or China or South America or South Africa or other parts of Latin America, Central America, people are just taken away and they're gone forever. And that was James' experience. No witnesses, no word, no story to be told, at least in this world. That's life. That's life sometimes. To, to me the brevity of this count, account has the ring of truth. Luke is only telling what he knows. He, he can't tell anything beyond what he knows. So he's telling what he, um, he can't tell what he doesn't know. So the Bible very often has clear marks of being historical and to me this is one of them. The lack of information makes this account actually more credible. Um, there's not a tendency to make up events with Luke. He tells what he knows to be true. And he says that at the beginning of his gospel, if you remember, he says he investigated everything carefully. So he doesn't write stories that aren't true. Anyway, let's talk a little bit more practical now in terms of our own Christian walk. Let's talk about God's sovereignty a little bit as relates to James' early death. Why does he die so soon? He lives maybe 10 or 11 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then boom, it's over. His brother John, from all we know, actually outlives all the other apostles. He becomes quite old. Why would James, one of the inner three, not be allowed to live longer as a witness? 
not even long enough to participate in the first church council that's still to come in chapter 15 of, of the book of Acts he's, he's gone so young isn't that a bad investment on, on God's part in terms of time and influence and things like that well those are all interesting questions but the obvious answer is who can say who can say God is sovereign we can't always explain why the Lord makes the choices that he does sometimes things don't make any earthly sense to us but how can tiny creatures like ourselves say that it makes no sense how can we say it makes no sense we never see the big picture we never know what's really going on we never see that so for us to say that doesn't make any sense that's that's just childish it's naive James had 10 good years at least to impact many lives and maybe his death inspired those he touched to stand up and take his place and be bold and multiply his ministry many times over you don't know maybe it was important for people to know early that an apostle was not immune from such persecution they they were not above laying down their lives for Christ maybe that was an inspiration in and of itself these special chosen men gave their lives for Jesus so we can speculate but we can't know we can't know and that's okay God is sovereign and we trust in God's revealed attributes that he's good holy just and merciful and all those good things so now in contrast to the story of James death we have the story of Peter's deliverance Peter is not killed by Herod verse 3 when he saw that it pleased the Jews talking about Herod Agrippa here he proceeded to arrest Peter also now it was during the days of unleavened bread a feast when he had seized him he put him in the prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people so Herod found that killing James was popular so now he's going to go for Peter and he's going to do it on a big day after the feast of unleavened bread so Peter's arrested during the feast Herod's plan was to make a, a display of Peter after the feast and execute him so he's very carefully guarded here it mentions that in some detail four guards are immediately present with Peter at all times two are chained to him and two are at the door and at night these four man squads would take um, separate watches of three hours each so every three hours they would rotate these four guards and there would be new guards chained and at the door so it's going to be a a double blow against the church according to Herod's planning to kill James and then Peter two of the three intimate disciples of Jesus but God had other plans and something else is going on outside the prison verse 5 so Peter was kept in prison but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God never never underestimate the power of a praying church that's why we pray here that's why you should be in prayer for things Um, clearly this text is meant to point us to the prayer the church could not help Peter could they but they could pray to somebody that could help Peter that's sort of the message Thomas Watson said the angel fetched Peter out of prison but it was the prayer that fetched the angel well I think there's some truth there verse 6 on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison and behold an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying get up quickly and his chains 
fell off his hands. Well it says a lot about Peter's faith that he was sound asleep the night before his execution. Um, That may be um, a more general trust in the Lord on Peter's part. Maybe he just trusted God and this was his time and he was ready and he slept comfortably. But think about this too. Peter does have a promise that the other apostles did not have. I can't prove he was thinking about this but if you remember Jesus words at the very end of John's gospel John chapter 21 verse 18 and 19 um, I wouldn't be surprised if Peter was thinking about this. So here's the words Jesus said um, truly I say to you when you were younger you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished but when you grow old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this he said to him follow me. So uh, John makes it clear that, that Jesus was saying these words to describe Peter's death. And we know from history Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. That's at least the, the strong story that we have there. So when you grow old. Well he's not old yet. He's a young man. That's. 30 years later. So um, Jesus said it would come. But it would come when he was old. So if Peter took that as a promise. He may well have thought he'd be released somehow. That God was going to intervene in some way. And maybe he, he could sleep comfortably that night. With that on his mind. So Peter has a promise. The church has intense prayer. And God who is sovereign. Has all the power. So how's God going to do it? Well he sends an angel. So he appears in the cell where Peter is held. Doesn't say anything about the guards except they're out. Out of it. They don't even know what's going on. So they're in some kind of delusion or they're knocked down or they're asleep or whatever. But Peter's chains just fall off. It's got to be cool to be an angel huh? You could just make chains fall off of people's hands and stuff like that. Um, Verse 8. The angel said gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him wrap your cloak about you and follow me. So Peter we're getting out of here. And Peter actually thought he was having a vision. He didn't think this was real. (laughs) So he went out uh, verse 9 and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city. Which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. So the angel gets him out, gets him a little bit of ways, and then the angel leaves. So Peter's just standing there. And then it says he comes to himself. He realizes, hey, verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, which was a brutal death. So wow, he's free. He immediately goes to John Mark's house where the church leadership often gathered and that's where the prayer meeting was going on. And this gets kind of funny too in real life humor here. Verse 12. When he had realized this he went to the house of Mary the mother of John who's also called Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. Verse 13. When he knocked at the door of the gate a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy she did not open the gate. But ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. So she leaves him standing outside. An escaped prisoner. (laughs) So she's running back to tell everybody the news that he's outside. 
and, and he's still outside. Hey, everybody, Peter is free. So it's really a delightful moment. I mean, s- sweet R- Rhoda, right? I mean, she's what a sweetheart. Uh, but they all think she's bonkers. And she's saying, it's true, it's true. Uh, verse 15, they said, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. So they're having a discussion about it while Peter's still outside instead of somebody just going and checking at the door right then. So um, they're going on about it. It was an ancient belief that your guardian angel would look like you. So that's what they say. Oh, you're seeing his guardian angel. That's, that was the thought. So, so think about it. Many people were praying. They were praying earnestly. They were praying specifically for Peter's deliverance. And then he's knocking on the door and they don't believe it. Isn't that how we are so often? We're not ready to, to trust that God is going to answer our prayers. You can be dedicated but not really believe that God's going to do something. Um, I've been like that many times. I pray earnestly but I'm just not really sure God's going to do anything. But prayer should always have with it expectation. Not that God will always say yes to our prayers because he doesn't. Sometimes we don't get what we're praying for. But um, God is sovereign and he has a sovereign will and he can do anything. So his sovereign will for James was that he die. His sovereign will for Peter is that he have many decades of service more to go. So God answers prayer. Peter is free. He lived to be old. So we left Peter at the door. Verse 16. Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door they saw him. And they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said report these things to James. And the brethren. That would be James the Lord's brother. Who was an important part of the church. And the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. So Peter hushes them. Must have been a pretty big outburst when they saw him. He's like don't don't make a scene. And then uh, he quietly tells them what's happening. And then he disappears into the night. So the book of Acts. In in the book of Acts. Peter's not going to show up again until chapter 15. And then he's going to drop out of the story altogether. So he probably left town at least for a time. While Herod was seeking him. Oh and we forgot about the prison. Let's go back to the prison. What happened back at the prison? Verse 18. When day came there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. They just had no idea what happened. He's just gone. So whatever was whatever God did to them they didn't see what happened. They didn't notice the doors opening. They didn't notice the chains falling off. They just find out the next day. Probably God just let them sleep or something. But what a scene. Four guards. Two of them are chained to Peter and two were at right at the door the whole time. So Herod is Let's call him unhappy about this. Verse 19. When Herod had searched for him. And had not found him. He examined the guards. And ordered that they be led away to execution. So they got. um, Roughly interrogated. I guess is the best way to say it. And they couldn't explain it. So he had to believe they failed in their service. So they killed the guards. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea. And was spending time there. Caesarea being the Roman city in the Holy Land. That's the most Roman city. The, se- the seat of Roman government there. So he lived there. He had palaces all around. But he, he liked to spend time there. Because he had a Roman cultural influence already. So the final verses then tell us the end of Herod Agrippa. It is not long in coming. It's a very famous event. And here's what happened. So there's these coastal cities. Tyre and Sidon. Which is in modern day Lebanon. And they used to bring their food in from the interior. Galilee. Which Herod 
Agrippa was in charge of Galilee and somehow they had offended him and so he kind of cut off their food supply and wanting to get back in their good graces they tried working through his chamberlain a man named Blastus. Somehow uh, so they offended him. So he arranged for them to see Herod at this very large public celebration that was going to happen where he could be praised and flattered and bask in their adulation and all that kind of stuff. So verse 20 says, Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and with one accord they came to him and having won over Blastus the king's chamberlain they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day Herod having put on his royal apparel took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, this is verse 22, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. What's fascinating about this is that Josephus, the Jewish historian, relates a history that almost perfectly parallels what Luke says right here. He just gives a lot more detail about it. Josephus does. So this is another historical event that was very public. I'm going to read you what he said about it, part of it. On the second day of the spectacles he put on a garment made wholly of silver. So Herod Agrippa puts on this beautiful garment of silver of a truly wonderful texture and came into the theater early in the morning There the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those who looked intently at him. Presently his flatterers cried out one from one place and another from another though not for his good that he was a god. And they added be merciful to us for although we have hitherto reverenced you only as a man yet from now on we shall own you as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. But he shortly afterward looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings just as it had been once the messenger of good tidings to him in his early days and fell into the deepest sorrow a severe pain arose in his belly striking with a most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said I whom you call a God am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me and I who was by you called immortal am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots as it pleases God for I have by no means lived ill but in splendor and happy manner and when he had said this his pain became violent. Accordingly he was carried into the palace and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die soon. The multitude sat in sackcloth men women and children after the law of their country and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation and within five days he was dead. So God, God is sovereign isn't he? God ordained that Herod's death be told in a history apart from the Bible so anyone who is wise can gain from this event to give it extra consideration because this is in secular history not just in the Bible. So when this chapter began when we started chapter 12 we saw this very man Herod Agrippa with great power 
a significant king, a friend of emperors, a man who took a life according to his whims and had the power to do that. And at the end, while being proclaimed a god, he dies an agonizing death. Warren Wearsby summed up the lesson, I think, well. He said, quote, the world still lives for praise and pleasure. Man has made himself his own God. The world lives on the physical and ignores the spiritual. It lives by force and flattery instead of faith and truth. And one day it will be done. It is necessary that a good God bring death to such a world as human beings have made of it. So he's right. Death has been the rule since man turned away from God at the beginning. It comes for us all. All of us are facing death. We are the spoilers of creation and I don't mean pollution although that too but moral pollution. We've corrupted God's good world in so many horrible ways. So in this chapter we see the untimely death of an apostle at the hands of a king and we see the untimely death of a king at the hand of God. James who had no power but faith and Herod who had all that the world offers they're both dead. Where are they now? Where are they now? I think that's the question. Some people you know they comfort themselves that both men are just gone. They believe we'll all just be gone. It doesn't really matter what you do in this world. These folks are gambling. They're gambling that there's no accounting. That there's no creator. No judge. No justice. But Jesus said there will be a great reckoning. A sorting out at the end. The righteous from the unrighteous. And since we're all sinners and undeserving God provided a savior by by whom anyone who places their trust in him as their Lord can receive eternal life because they're made righteous by his righteousness. That's how you get to be on the righteous side of that division. If people refuse him they they have to stand on the day of the great reckoning without him on, on their own merits. But if they embrace the savior Jesus then he has paid for all of their sins. God is sovereign and no matter how great is people's hatred of him his love continues. So the saving message goes forward. Verse 24 I'll end with this. Well in verse 25 too. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Salvation continues. Do you see that? God makes sure the word continues to get out. God is bringing in his harvest. His love will not be stopped. Then verse 25 and Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission taking along with them John who was also called Mark. So they go back to Antioch and with them this, this great work of redemption enters into a whole new level and that's what we'll look, about, look at in chapter 13. Gets more and more exciting as we go. Let's pray. Lord your sovereignty rules over all you bring justice but also redemption. None of us are worthy of your love but you have poured it out on us 
as surely as you poured out your wrath on your son Jesus for our sakes he is the fullest expression of your love for us and we pray in his name amen all right stay with us for the book of acts it's getting interesting